pray. Father, would you um, draw that day nearer, send our Savior to, um, to save us from the time of tribulation and, and to bring us into his kingdom. And um, Lord, we pray that we would bow our hearts and worship to you this evening. We pray that our hearts would be submitted to you as we reflect on your word and, and our responsibility to obey it pray that the text would be clear as your Holy Spirit illumines our minds and that our application of it would be appropriate um, to what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 11 tonight as we continue our study in, in this letter from Paul. There is this reality that with our regular habit of meeting together for worship that that we could fall into the trap of subtly slipping away from our main purpose for why we're here, our main purpose for worship. I mean, we can think about this with regard to our singing, that, that our minds can, even now as we've just sung, maybe just check out for a minute and not really think about the words that we're singing or not think about to whom we're singing. Um, we can we can slip or slip away from the main purpose of our giving, where we thoughtlessly put money into the plate, like we're paying a bill or something. And uh, certainly, we can do this during preaching as well. Paul's concern in our passage is that the church is not just mindlessly observing the Lord's Supper, but actually that they are doing um, the opposite. His problem is that they're doing the opposite of what the Lord's Supper is intended to symbolize. And so he calls them out for this and then shows them what the, or reminds them, I should say, of what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is and then how they can kind of course correct from there. So let's take a look at the text, beginning in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the Word of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I in part believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks 
eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul is concerned about the Corinthians and their observance of the Lord's Supper. And the point that we should draw from the passage, I think is the point of the text, is that we must honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper. So Paul begins in verses 17 through 22 by showing how they dishonored God in their observance of the Lord's Supper. And so he effectively answers that question. How do we dishonor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper? For number one, we are divisive. We dishonor God when we are divisive. Verses 17 through 19. Paul here rebukes them for their observance of the Lord's table because they're divided. In verse 2 of this chapter, he praised them for holding their traditions, but, but no praise here, right? He says in verse 17, I do not praise you. And then verse 22, at the end, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. So here he's going to give a sharp rebuke to them for uh, being divisive. And the, the reason I, uh, the way I get that is, um, is verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Paul's saying, listen, what I've been saying so far in this letter is the, this constant refrain for you as a church body. It is that you are constantly trying to get pole position. You're always trying to get first place for yourself. It's all about you and your leaders. And as a result, you're divided. And, and here it is again. In the observance of the Lord's Supper of all places, you're, you're constantly trying to outdo one another regard to your position and power and you have little concern for other people. In verse 19, we see that Paul's not surprised by divisions because divisions are inevitable. That is, that when conflict arises in the church, it's inevitable that there is going to be conflict. The difference is that true Christians are going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of conflict. They're, they're going to respond rightly to the conflict. Well, not every time, but, but ideally, the, the Christian is growing in his ability to respond rightly to conflict. It's as if God, through this test, is, is showing the purity or the lack thereof of our ability to handle conflict. And the question for the Corinthians is how they're going to respond now that this division has been put on the table, effectively, just... Here it is. Here's another uh, example of your divisiveness. What are you going to do about it? Divisions will come. Factions must be there so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Verse 19. So what does this division look like in the Corinthian church? In the Corinthian church? Look at the next verse. We dishonor God when we are selfish. Verses 20 and 21. We dishonor God when we are selfish. That is, that we make the Lord's Supper about me. 
when we make the Lord's Supper about us as individual Christians. Verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So this thing that you're doing here, the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, verse 21, each of you takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. So he's saying, you know, when you come and and you go through this little ritual that you're doing, you can call it a number of things, but please don't call it the Lord's Supper because that's not what it is. They invalidated the Lord's Supper, the observance of the Lord's Supper by making it about self and position. One's eating and the other's drunk. The implication is that apparently some people were turning this into a meal or having their meal. We'll talk about this a little bit more later. Someone else is drinking Getting drunk. So in order to see this, that they're making this about self and position, we need to um, consider a few things about their contemporary situation. First, we need to recognize that they were meeting in a member's house. This is long before the days when churches had their own buildings and signs out in front and all that. So we know that the congregations would gather in a member's house often. And if the church was going to meet in your house... What would that say about you as the house's owner if the church was of 50, 75, 100 people? Right? It would say that you're probably pretty wealthy. You have a decent amount of money that you can have a house that's big enough to, to uh, hold that many people. second thing we need to consider is that we need to understand the layout of a typical Roman-style house in those days. And it was not open concept open concept like the fat is today, there would be a large upper room usually where they would meet. There would be a dining room that was usually small. It would hold about nine or ten people. And so apparently what's happening here is that whoever's house this was, they they would invite their other wealthy guests into the dining room portion and then the rest were kind of left out, which is why um, Paul draws attention to his lack of concern or their lack of concern for poor people. Um, Third thing we need to consider is that the poorer people would have been required to work all day. And so a wealthy person is a little bit more free in, in how they can do their schedule. So apparently these meetings, when they were coming together, were later at night, but the, the richer, wealthier people were coming a little earlier And so as a result, they were just going ahead with the Lord's Supper without waiting for the poor people who were finishing up at work. Fourth thing to consider is that the wealthy members would have had household servants often who would be responsible for caring for these guests. So that when someone would come into the house, these guests would come to the house, it would take care of them, right? They'd wash their feet. They would um, take care of them, make sure that they have everything that they need and so on. But the interesting dynamic in a church like this would be that some of these servants, slaves, would have come to Christ and have been a member of the church, just like the wealthy person. So in that sense, they're all on the same plane, and yet they're not. Because the wealthy people don't really know how to handle this within the context of a local church. So with all that in mind, picture what this early eating is all about that they're having a meal together. The wealthy members invite their wealthy Christian friends, join them in the dining room a little bit earlier, take the Lord's Supper. 
Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So these poor people in your church, you don't care about them. All you're concerned about is feeding yourself. Can't you eat your pinkies up style meal at your own house? The poor members are not invited or, or maybe they're not they're just not able to get there that early. And as a result, they go on with not just the meal, but the Lord's Supper, and they go on without the poorer person, the poorer people in the church. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about how we do honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper, but let's just take a step back for a second and consider what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. Christ laid down His life so that we will be unified with whom? Okay, with Him, right? And we will be unified with Christ. That's part of what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. That's what we're going to talk about. Our union with Christ. That baptism symbolizes our initial union with Christ. And then this Lord's Supper is an ongoing expression of that union with Christ. But Christ also laid down His life so that we could be unified with one another. Not just with Him, but with one another. And so that's part of what the Lord's Supper symbolizes as well. Turn to John chapter 17. John 17. probably know this is the Lord's prayer here where He prays to the Father a few days before His death. what we want to see from here is that Christ laid down His life so that we could be unified, not just with Him, but with one another. Look at verse 11. Jesus praying to His Father says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, that is My disciples, they are in the world, and I come to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, the name which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we are. Who's the we there? Father, Son, Probably the Spirit is included in there. Notice in the New American Standard, it's a capital We, capital W there, showing that he's talking about the Godhead. So just as we are unified in the Godhead, so this is what I want my disciples to be. That's how unified he wants us to be. So look down to verse 20 just to reinforce this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those also who believe in Me through their words. So this is not just about the disciples. He's saying this is expanded on beyond these immediate eleven. I'm saying anyone who believes in Me through My Word, I'm asking on behalf of them. Then verse 21, that they may be one even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You. And they also be in us so that the world may believe that You sent Me. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. So with the Lord's Supper, the believers were not concerned about what Christ is concerned about. Christ, with regard to the Lord's Supper, is concerned about their acknowledgement and remembrance of their unity with Him and their acknowledgement and remembrance of their unity with one another. They're not concerned about that, though. They're concerned about self and position. And so... The only way that we can have communion with Christ legitimately, the only way that we can legitimately partake of this bread and cup is if we have communion 
with the gathered church. The, the symbolism of the Lord's Supper signifies both the, the vertical relationship we have and the horizontal. How do we know if we're in a right vertical relationship? Well, part of it is if we have a right horizontal relationship with one another, with the gathered church. We dishonor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper when we, are di- when we are divisive. We dishonor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper when we are selfish, when it's all about us as individuals. And then thirdly, we dishonor God when we are condescending. When we look down on others who have less than us. Look again at verse 22. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So there's the condescension part. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I will not praise you. So there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking with other believers. There's nothing wrong with getting together with your church and and having a meal. But the point is that the Lord's Supper is intended to reflect on the death of Christ and the unity of the body. And what are they doing according to verse 22? They're shaming and humiliating the poorer members. Apparently, by engaging in this meal without them, they were marginalizing and excluding some. They made a line of distinction between the haves and the have nots. Can that kind of thing still happen in our church today? In our kinds of churches today? I mean, can someone come in who's. Um, a member of our church who's a little bit more prominent in the secular world and he'd be treated different than someone who's poor. Um, Certainly, James 2 talks about that idea of just when someone walks into the door, you have someone who's got a gold ring on and fancy clothing and someone else comes in with dirty, smelly clothing and, and we treat them differently. Paul says... We, we dishonor God when we're condescending. Paul effectively says to them that there are only two explanations for their careless behavior. Either you don't have a house to eat at, which he knew that they did, right? Do you not have houses in which to eat? Well, maybe, okay, that's the explanation, right? If you don't have a house to eat at, well, then you have to eat here. Or, here's the only other explanation, you despise Christ's church by humiliating others who have nothing. You make it worse on them and their position by, by, uh, by magnifying their nothingness, effectively. We dishonor God when we are divisive, when we are selfish, when we are condescending. So how do we honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper? How do we honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper? And that's what the rest of the text answers. And there are two ways. First, we remember that the Lord's Supper is about union with Christ. And then second, we remember that the Lord's Supper is about union with one another. Okay, so very simply, our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationship. When we understand those two purposes of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, then we honor God in, in our observance of it. So they were not using the Lord's Supper properly. And so Paul uses the next four verses to remind the believers about their responsibility to remember the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The first thing we we see in these verses is that the Lord's Supper is a visible expression of our union with Christ. Verses 23 to 25. 
It's a visible expression of our union with Christ. We might look at the observance of the Lord's table and think that it's just a mindless ritual, but it ought to be a reverent memorial. Notice the commands here that's repeated in verses 24 and 25. What's the command that's repeated? Do this in remembrance of me. So in verse 25, there's a little um, clause between the, um, the verb and the prepositional phrase there, but, but the same command is there. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus is saying that the Lord's Supper is about Him. It's about remembering Him. It's not just entering all the intellectual facts into our brains so that we are academically able to answer the questions on the quiz like we talked about on Sunday. You know, because there is a there there is this reality that we can know all the right answers and yet it doesn't affect us. Like the disciples who had seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, they didn't know where they're going to get bread when they're on the boat with Jesus. So it's more than knowing the facts. It's more than knowing that Jesus died on the cross and He died for my sins. It's, it's the idea of this remembrance is, is the idea of considering or observing the significance of and then acting accordingly. It's like when, when God remembers His promise to Noah. When He looks at the, the rainbow, He remembers. Is it that God had forgotten intellectually? No, He acts according to what He knows. This is our remembrance of the Lord's Supper. It's not just the intellectual exercise that we do. You know, we kind of check it off our list that we've, we've done the Lord's Supper like we were supposed to. But we actually engage and recognize that the Lord's Supper is a visible expression of our union with Him. That's why, it's, um, that's why He says, this is My body. This cup is the new covenant of My blood. So when you take these elements you are symbolizing the relationship that you have with Me. Right? No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they eat My, eat my flesh and drink My blood. Jesus said it in a more... Um, I say crass, but, but a little bit uh, harder way to understand when He was talking to His disciples. The Lord's Supper is about our union with Christ. Do this in the remembrance of Me. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing proclamation of the death of Christ. Notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So there's two parts of that. Ongoing and proclamation. The first is the communion is to be practiced perpetually. Ongoingly. Right? For as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death. And notice that last phrase. Until He comes. So baptism is not commanded in this way. We don't baptize our, we don't get baptized as often as we uh, as, as often as you get baptized, you know, you proclaim the Lord's death. No, that's a one-time event. We do it after salvation, but the Lord's supper should be done regularly. But communion is not just to be practiced perpetually, it's also a proclamation. Do you see that? You proclaim the Lord's death. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the message of Christ to each other. And has not that not happened when you were um, taking the Lord's Supper yourself? That, that it reminded you of why we meet together as a church. It reminded you of the sacrifice that Christ has done. And so what's happening is as a congregation does this as a whole, we're reminding one another of the death of Christ. 
Corinthians needed to consider what this looked like to non-Christian guests as well, not just to each other, but also to non-Christian guests, that, that there is a uh, there there is this um, this truth that that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, not just to each other, but I think to non-Christian guests as well. I mean, consider our own church. Do we exclude non-Christians from from coming to our morning worship service? No, we invite them to come. We want them to be here. We want them to be under the sound of God's Word. We want them to see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. But when it comes time for the Lord's Supper, we clearly exclude them. Right? We put a clear fence around the table, figuratively speaking. And we invite them to watch what's going on, but we ask them not to partake of it. And so what are we saying to them when we all are partaking and we're asking them not to? And I think we're doing what the text says here, that we are proclaiming the Lord's death. But there's something special about this about this observance that we're doing. And they, they ought to wonder about it. They ought to, to want to know more. This, this memorial is designed in some way to show an unbelieving, watching world of our commitment to our Savior and to each other. So, how do we honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper? We remember that it's about, first, the union, our union with Christ. But communion is not only a celebration of our union with Christ. It's also a celebration of our corporate union with one another, with other believers in this local expression of Christ's body. And I think we miss the second one too often. Um, you know, the Lord's Supper, we would just be as happy if we were in a room all by ourselves. You know, somehow that you know, we could get our two elements and we could hear the words from the pastor, then we'd be fine just doing it in a room by ourselves. And yet, that's not what the Lord's Supper was meant to do. It's meant to also remind us about our union with one another. And this is the point of Paul's rebuke in verse 20. Whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Because this Lord's Supper is incomplete. You don't even have everybody there. He's saying you're selfishly just engaging in this activity as if it's some type of ritual that helps you, that earns you favor before God. But notice that, that communion should only take place when, verse 20, the church is gathered. Therefore, when you meet together. Verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together. So it's, it, it ought to be done at the gathering of the church. We saw in verses 23 through 26 that the focus was on our union with Christ. But let me show you that there are also some clues in those same verses that the Lord's Supper is also about our union with one another. Okay, so before we get into verse 27 and following, I want to show you from the previous text that we were looking at, previous paragraph, verse 20, 23. Notice um, at the end, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So here's the first clue that the Lord's Supper is not just about our union with Christ, but also about our union with one another, and that is that there is one loaf that's shared among the disciples. There... I should say, that that was the original. Um, that's what Jesus did. But but there's one loaf that's shared among all the believers there at the church in Corinth. The point is, is that we are not a collection of individuals who just happen to be 
believers in Jesus Christ and who have received His benefits. We are not just a bunch of individual islands who are out there who happen to be Christians. We are saved in order to be united together with a local body of believers. And to miss that point and to humiliate some members of the church in the process is to miss the point of the ordinance. The point of the ordinance was to show your union with Christ and your union to one another. Notice the second clue that we see in verse 25, that there's one cup. Signifies Also, this cup signifies a covenant, a, an agreement that's been made that binds us together as individuals, that we have made an agreement with God and with one another to enter into a relationship of corporate sanctification, of corporate pursuit of holiness. And so these serve as additional reminders that the Lord's Supper is not an individual exercise. It's not to be done with an exclusive group only. It's to be done with the whole body. So how can we honor God in our observance of the Lord's Supper? We recognize that it's about our union with Christ, and secondly, we recognize that it's about our union with each other. And Paul, that's what Paul makes clear here in, in three ways. And he essentially is responding to these first three ways in which they dishonored God in their observance of the Lord's Supper. So the first way that they dishonored God was that they were divisive. And Paul's saying in response to that... Oh, I forgot to move the screen down. Sorry about that. Um, so in response to that, we must recognize the body as a whole. So verses 27, to 27 and 29, we must recognize the body. Here's the first command that we must recognize the body. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So the implication in verse 27 is to eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. So we'll talk about what unworthy is here in just a second, but let me show you from verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge or recognize the body rightly. So the implication in verse 27 is that we must eat in a worthy manner. An unworthy matter is doing what they're doing. They're eating while selfishly being concerned about, about number one, right? And maybe about their vertical relationship with Christ, but not about anybody else. A person who is divisive and does not recognize the body is, is not judging the body properly. And so... That's why Paul says you need to judge the prop body properly and to recognize the rest of the body. Take, take into consideration what the body is. Turn to chapter 10. Recognize the purpose and the function of the body. Chapter 10, verse, verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. So the problem with Corinth, just like in chapter 10, same in chapter 11, is that they didn't recognize the true nature of the church, and that is to be one body. Just as we partake of one bread, we are all one body. He's going to, he's going to um, piggyback on that, chapter 12, by saying that we are all one body, but we have many members, we have many different moving parts, many different gifts, and so we need to use them accordingly. But we need to still recognize that we're all necessary for, the, for the, um, the working together of the body. So first, recognize the body in response to the divisiveness. 
In other words, discern what the body is for. What is the body of Christ? It is that functioning organism that God has created to, to share in His glory and, and to, um, to be able to display His glory to a watching world. And, and it's the group that God has entrusted to our care. Secondly, we need to examine ourselves verse 28, and then verses 30 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord... I'm sorry, verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. And then verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So this is in response to the condescension. When we dishonor God through our condescension, looking down on others who have less than us, then we then we have to examine ourselves individually, examine ourselves as a whole. And the idea of examine here is to make sure that we're, we're unified with Christ and unified with the body. So here's a couple good questions that we can ask before we come to the table. Am I right with God? And then secondly, am I right with God's people? Because do you remember 1 John 4, 19-21? You can say all you want that you love God, But don't tell me that you love God when you hate your brother because how can you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love your brother whom you have seen? So here's the way that you can know if you are right with God. One of the ways you can know you are right with God, are you right with God's people? Many of the churches that I've been, pastors have encouraged people to, to... to examine themselves right before taking the elements. But I would suggest to you that that's a little bit too late. They might say, well, it's never too late to examine yourself, and, and I can see the point there. But, but my, my point is that what if you're not right with your brother and the church is going to partake of the bread within the next minute? What are you going to do about it? Well, Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, get up from your prayer, your worship, and go and reconcile. Right, so that would be the best thing to do, but but that's usually not going to happen. So I would suggest that this examining process would be better handled. So maybe maybe not to disparage all the pastors who have said you know examine yourselves before you come to the table, okay, immediately before. Maybe maybe I could say it this way: a better way to do it would be to examine yourself well before you come to the table. Not the morning of. This is why at our church we make our schedule available to you for when we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Generally, it's the first Sunday of the month, so you can almost always count on it, but occasionally it'll be on a different Sunday like it was this month. And for you to know that, you just get our quarterly sermon schedule and you can find when the Lord's Supper is going to be observed. So now, if you know when the Lord's Supper is going to take place, then you can do what the Corinthians needed to do. Examine themselves before you come. Prepare yourself in advance. Make sure that your relationship with God is right and then make sure your relationship with one another is right. Notice the consequence of not taking the Lord's Supper seriously in verses 30 through 32. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep consequence of not taking this seriously is sickness and death. 
Now, it could be that the person who's committing the sin, the person who's profaning the Lord's Supper is the one who's sick or dead. could be that. Or it could be like the deaths that happen in the Old Testament. Those deaths were kind of no respecters of persons, right? A few people in the camp would sin against God and His laws, and who died? Thousands of people would die who didn't, didn't necessarily disobey the law, right? Kind of collateral damage, so to speak. And so it could be that other people are sick and dead in the church at Corinth because of these um, condescending, selfish, divisive, wealthy people who, um, who are not willing to consider one another. So how do we avoid this judgment on ourselves? And this is pretty frightening just to think about, that our sin could actually cause sickness and death in ourselves or someone else. How can we avoid this judgment? Verse 31 gives the answer. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So what's the worst possible scenario? In verses 31 to 32. There's three types of judgment. Okay, We judge ourselves, God judges us through discipline, or God condemns us. Which is the worst of those three? God condemns us with the rest of the world. Final condemnation and eternal hell, that's the worst kind of condemnation. So God's saying, in order to avoid that, I will discipline you. Okay, so if we want to work backwards through verses 31, 32. Final condemnation. I'm protecting you from that because I'm your Father and I love you. I'm your Shepherd. So in order for me to protect you from that, I'm I'm going to discipline you, which may come in the form of sickness or death. But here's a better way for you to avoid that, to even avoid my discipline. You judge yourselves. You know, it's like the child who who, um, while his parents were gone, broke a window in the house. Okay, and and for the next several hours, he's figuring out a way to replace that window. Not in order to cover up, but because he feels contrition and he recognizes what he's done. And he, he goes and sells maybe some of his baseball cards. Goes down to the hardware store and comes back with a window that's not even close to the right size, but he... By the time his dad gets home, dad said, what happened? He said, well, I broke the window and I tried to replace it, dad. I couldn't do it. I mean, what the son has done is he's already recognized his sin before he has to have it addressed by his father, right? Better than the son who breaks the window and then hides or tries to cover it up or acts like he didn't do it or lies about it. Right? Because the Father loves him, He's going to go after him. He's going to, he's going to hold him accountable for that. It's probably going to be a worse punishment, we could say, than if the Son just took it upon Himself, the self-sanctioned type of situation, right? This is what God's saying. Listen, I'm trying to keep you from final condemnation. And I will discipline you if I have to. But here's a better way. Judge for yourselves. Examine yourselves. Check your heart before 
We could say it this way, self-judgment before divine judgment. If we examine ourselves and course correct with the help of God, then we bring about the result that God wants to bring about. The point is that all of this judgment, self-judgment, God's judgment, is meant to bring about God's, God's desire. And He's trying to keep us from final condemnation. You might not like to think about God as one who still acts as the judge of His people, the one who will come after us when we sin. But this is the God that we serve. God does not take lightly our mistreatment, our humiliation, our divisiveness. He is working to unify our church through the power of the Spirit. And anyone who prevents that unity or sabotages that unity will be judged by God. So, recognize the body, recognize the purpose of it, and then secondly, examine yourself. The third third way that put on there but you can't see is wait for one another. Verses 33 and 34. So, the way that we dishonor God in the first part of the, the passage is that we are selfish. We make the Lord's Supper about us as individuals. And Paul's saying, here's the counterpart to that. Here's the, the antidote to that. Wait for one another. Don't make the Lord's Supper about you. Don't make the Lord's Supper about your appetites. Wait for one another. And, and here, do, do yourself a favor. Eat at home. You're humiliating people of lesser status who can't take part in the same meal. So eat your fancy meals at home. That's fine. There's no problem with that. But don't humiliate those who are less well off than you. Make it possible that when you come together, that the primary thing that you look forward to is not the food, but rather the fellowship and encouragement with God's people through the observance of the Lord's Supper. Wait for one another. So let me leave you with a couple of simple thoughts. Uh, I think this is kind of rich with application as we went through it, so I think you can draw a lot of that out yourself. But let me just make three simple applications for us. Number one, observe the Lord's Supper regularly. So there are two parts to this application. First, you need to observe the Lord's Supper, and I'm talking about you as individuals as part of a larger group. So if the command or the expectation for a believer is to observe the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, then, then, then um, that suggests that we ought to do that. If we do not observe the Lord's Supper with a local body of believers, then, then can I just ask, why not? The requirements for taking the Lord's Supper at our church is salvation, baptism, and church membership. So why not? Why would you not want to obey this expectation, this command, this observance that, God, that Christ has set forth for us as a symbol of our union with Him and our union with one another. So observe the Lord's Supper. second part of that application is that we should do it regularly. And so I would suggest that as often as the church observes the Lord's Supper to the best of your ability, you should observe the Lord's Supper. So again, you have the schedule. Make it, make it um, your priority to be here when the Lord's Supper is being observed. And then, secondly, engage your mind when you take the Lord's Supper. 
Recognize what the Lord's Supper is all about. Recognize what it's not about. The Lord's Supper is about your union with Christ and your union with other believers. Don't make it about your status or your selfishness or your condescension or your divisiveness or maybe your own own individual relationship with God, so to speak. Engage your mind throughout the observance of it. Remember what Jesus did in order to purchase your union with Christ. This memorial is meant to to be a remembrance of Jesus. So use your time your time to reflect on the price that was paid that bought you your union with Him. That bought you your union with one another. Engage your mind while you take the Lord's Supper. And then uh, to go along with that uh, second command, which was to examine yourself, prepare yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. If we are going to treat the Lord's Supper as it was designed, then we need to be prepared before we take the Lord's Supper. So take some time just to think about your own spiritual condition. What is my status with God? What is my status with fellow believers? Is there some is there some division that's going on between me and one or a bunch of other believers in the church? And when you come, make sure that you have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with God's people. All right? Questions, comments? Or tomatoes. Sandra. <laughs>